Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start on oil because it's very geopolitical now. I think that the price of oil has an awful lot to do with the Russian pressure on the Ukraine. Not that the Ukraine produces much oil, because it doesn't. But one of the ways to sanction Russia is to remove them part or all from the uh, U.S. dollar payment system. And if you did that, it would be very hard for them to sell their oil for a while. I mean, they'd figure it out, but they'd have to contract with the Chinese to sell it for RMB or the Japanese to sell it for yen. But that would take time. It's very unlikely that the, I don't know that Biden's really making any decisions, but the staff around Biden is probably realizes that would rather than talk $4 gasoline, they'd be talking $6 gasoline, and that's not going to help them in the midterm. So, and of course, I think the Europeans would be horrified with higher oil prices, although their exposure, of course, is the gas. So I think in terms of evaluating oil equities, we should assume that the price of oil will settle down here, that there is not really that much of a supply crunch, that Omicron is not going to cause the kind of decline in demand that we had in in uh, April, May, June of uh, 2000, where oil went negative for a couple of days. But it will have some impact on demand. Think of these Chinese cities, you know, whole cities of eight, nine, 10 million people being locked down. That can't be good for oil demand. So I'm kind of thinking that, you know, the pump month got up in the 80s that the 63, I mean, the 23, 24 price didn't move that much. So the backwardation just became more. So I don't, if you own particular oil stock, Magnolia, Pioneer, Diamondback, some oil stock that you've got a profit in it you like, I'd hang in with it. I do think that oil is not sustainable in the 80s, given the supply-demand situation. The other thing, of course, is that sooner or later, electric cars are going to have an impact on oil demand. Not yet, but something to keep an eye on. In terms of natural gas demand, the fourth quarter was just too warm, and pump gas came down by a buck or buck and a half. Once again, when you look at the 23-24 price, there wasn't that much change, but it certainly had an impact on natural gas equities. I think the natural gas companies, which are mostly the Marcellus companies, have to start dividends. EQT said they're starting a dividend. And Terra Resources has very little debt relative to the others. They could start a dividend. Chesapeake has just bought some more properties, chief a private company, and they're, they've got a dividend. Katura has always had a dividend, but I think Southwestern and Range and uh, Antero are conspicuous by not starting a dividend. I can't believe that. I mean, if gas prices hold for 23, that'd be 350. If you look at what the companies realize in, uh, well, we're about to see the fourth quarter, but in the third quarter, they had high spot prices, but their realizations were retarded by all the hedges they had on. So. If you can get your debt down so you don't have to sell gas forward, do swaps or collars or whatnot, the additional cash flow coming to these companies is quite quite significant. In terms of gas supply, uh, it was a little worrisome because gas production in this country 
they say in the middle of the year last year was around 90 bees. As the as near month came up a lot, got up to five, five and a half, production increased to 94. Interestingly enough, in this cold weather, it's back down around 91 or 92. So that's promising from a supply-demand balance. The LNG exports have stayed at 13. Residential commercial, of course, was down in the fourth quarter because you didn't have enough heating degree days countrywide, but it's been very strong now. And uh, powers continue to be pretty strong. So I think the supply-demand balance looks pretty good. And I would be a little surprised if that 350 price in 23 isn't a pretty good prediction of where we'll be in 23 and thereafter. And I'm hoping that these gas stocks get their debt down enough so they just don't hedge anymore. One of the things you see, and you certainly see it in Europe and China with the very high LNG prices, as you try to move towards more solar and more wind, you got a heck of a lot of volatility. Why not stay unhedged and take advantage of that volatility? On macro stuff, before we get into uh, uh, the other tech stuff and whatnot, we're going to discuss on macro stuff. I do think that the inflation is significant enough so that the Fed will not only have increases in the Fed funds rate like every quarter or something next year, so maybe the Fed funds rate goes from effectively zero to 1% or one quarter percent or something like that. But the real impact is going to be running off the Fed balance sheet. Before the COVID, the Fed balance sheet was $4 trillion. They'd begun to work it down a little until they, before they discovered quantitative easing. It was like a trillion and a half or something. And that's probably all the Fed needs in order to be the central bank in our 22 or $3 trillion economy. GMP, but they did work up to four and a half or four six or something. They started to run off. Runoff means you not only stop buying bonds every month, which is called tapering, which they're doing. They say they're going to be finished with tapering by March, but runoff means you, you stop reinvesting the cash interest payments and the and the maturities. In runoff, you probably go from the nine trillion, which you got to, up from four. Basically, you monetize the deficit we ran to combat the COVID. It would go from uh, nine down. How quickly would it go down? I think a good guess is it would go down by a trillion and a half a year. It depends on the maturities of what they bought. So it would be nine, seven and a half, six. Now, somewhere along that there, there'll be some problem and, and the Fed will slow down or something uh, probably. But it really needs to get down to four trillion again. What will happen? I mean, would the 10-year bond be 175, whatever it is today, if the Fed had not taken its balance sheet from four to four to nine? I don't think so. I think that in order to balance supply and demand for money, it would there would be a real interest rate. A real interest rate means the inflation rate would be, or the interest rate would be more than the inflation rate now. Inflation rate that we're reporting is like nine percentage points or eight percentage points or seven percentage points. It's very high. Maybe it's supply chain. Maybe it has something to do with just increased demand and less supply because of uh, coming out of COVID. But eventually, I think the inflation rate will be three percent or something like that, two, three percent. And uh, let's say one percent real interest rate. I just don't see how. If the Fed does what it should do, which is let the balance sheet run down, 
I just don't see how we don't wind up with a three and a half percent, at least a three and a half percent ten-year Treasury by sometime in 23, maybe not by the end of 22. Now that's way above what economists are forecasting. One of the things I've heard is that the one of the arguments that it won't happen is that the amount of Treasury debt outstanding now is $29 trillion. If you have just 1% on that is $290 billion, 2% is like half a trillion dollars, crowd out all other federal spending. Well, okay, but still, it's a price. Interest rate is a price, supply, demand of money. We can't just continue to increase the Federal Reserve balance sheet. We did it because of a crisis, COVID. We probably overdid it, but at some point, it's got to go away. What will the impact be on asset values? We may not, until recently, have created much price inflation, consumer price inflation, but we certainly create a lot of asset inflation. One of the assets inflated was the stock market. So one of the things Mike and I are going to talk about today is protect yourself by having companies that don't need to raise money. They're generating more cash than they're using and are also growing or taking market share. Don't be fall in love with a company. I mean, how can you invest and not fall in love? But don't fall in love with a company that's got to raise money, that doesn't have free cash flow, especially if you can find a company that grows, pays a dividend that goes up every year and has extra cash to buy in stock. Much better place to be while this kind of re- Reevaluation of all assets, whether they be housing or Bitcoin or, or stocks, have a place where you're comfortable sticking with the investment. If you look over a five or 10 year period, the only way to really compound your capital is to stick with the investment, but you want to get in a place where you're comfortable hanging on to the investment. And with that, what I'd like to do, Mike and I would like to do is we'd like to cover two things for the remaining time. One is really good software companies. And the two companies, I mean, we Mike has other companies that he really focuses in. But I think in this time, if you want to buy quality software companies, the two to focus in on are Snowflake and Salesforce. And then we want to also focus in on chips. Of course, Mike has been a big fan, is very knowledgeable about NVIDIA, also Taiwan Semiconductor. Intel, we want to get into a little bit because maybe somehow the new CEO can turn it around. And then the one that the company was taking share from Intel, AMD. So with that, I think it's the case that both Snowflake and Salesforce are the kinds of companies that are close or will generate free cash flow and have strong balance sheets. They're going to continue to have market share. But with that, going to get commentary from Mike. Thanks, Hunt. So, yeah, we spent a lot of time over the last few months talking about software companies and relative valuations. And remember that I've stressed a lot the median multiple and how that's compared during the pandemic versus pre-pandemic. Over the course of the last few weeks, that median multiple next 12 month sales divided by or enterprise value divided by next 12 month sales has come down. And it's now reasonably within a range that could have been expected pre-pandemic. All that is to say is that we should be excited about this because it means that we're in a much more comfortable position to be able to buy some of these companies than we had been in the past. Not all software companies are good buys, however. There are 
and I think I've said this before, part of this shakeout is going to be separating the good ones from the bad ones. Who can continue to grow post-pandemic, right? Because the pandemic created a tailwind, if you will, for software, both enterprise software and consumer software. And actually, yesterday was Microsoft's earnings, and they were being watched very closely by the industry as a whole because Amazon Azure cloud sales are seen as a bellwether of total IT spending in general. And those sales came in maybe at expectations, maybe not as high as the highest expectations expected. So you saw Microsoft sell off very hard after hours and then kind of recoup those gains during the call because Satya Nadella discussed the forward-looking perspective for for Azure sales and that those were very positive. That's the same thing I'm seeing as well as far as some of the companies that I'm invested in or interested in. Salesforce, for example, has guided very strong forward-looking IT spend from their customers. (laughs) And that's the key to the growth for these particular companies. Salesforce, for example, you typically make a decision on Salesforce and it takes quite a while to implement longer than 12 months. Um, You may add additional modules, et cetera. So the impact of the tailwinds from COVID have not fully been felt by companies like that. So I like those. As far as the most exciting high growth software as a service company, in my mind, is without question, Snowflake. That being said, it is still very expensive because it is growing very fast. I don't think there was a company that was public that was growing as fast as Snowflake is today prior to the pandemic. So again, all that is to say, if you're going to pick some of these as part of a broader portfolio of about a dozen stocks, you don't want to have them all be SaaS companies and you don't want them all to be the more risky end of the spectrum, if you will. I'll mention one more company that I think is getting very interesting at this point because we spent quite a bit of time talking about vertical SaaS. We looked at a bunch of different vertical SaaS companies, but the one that is most interesting from a from a durability perspective, from a, a moat perspective, was Viva, which sells cloud software into the pharmaceutical industry. That one also has sold off to a point where it's starting to look like it's more interesting. So all that is to say is things are starting to go on sale. It's a good opportunity to dust off the last quarters, the last 10Q, keep an eye on the next earnings. And if you're looking for something like this in portfolio, we're at a better point in time to be looking. I'm going to pause there before we jump over to chips. No, no, I think all that is good. And we'll, in future Wednesdays, we'll try to add, like Mike mentioned, Viva, we'll try to add a couple of companies to Snowflake and Salesforce, and we'll monitor those two companies pretty carefully. Let's switch to chips where there's NVIDIA news because apparently they're going to give up on trying to acquire ARM. Arm is owned by software. The original deal was $40 billion, I think, because NVIDIA stock went up. It got so it was 60 or $70 billion. I don't know what SoftBank is going to do with Arm. Maybe they'll try to take it public. I don't know. But I've been following it. I trust stuff as it affects companies for a long time. I never remember antitrust situation where you have to clear antitrust regulators in China, the U.S., UK and Europe. And I think in the videos probably decided it's just too difficult. I don't think it's much of a negative for NVIDIA. But with that, I want to turn it over to Mike. Yeah, this one's a really interesting. It's really interesting, I guess, is all to say, because 
their options for ARM and for SoftBank are not good. Obviously, there's a market value that a company is worth based on the prospects of future growth and ultimately what those future cash flows are worth. Currently, ARM does not look very attractive from that perspective, not even at the $40 billion price tag at which NVIDIA offered to buy the company. Built into that $40 billion price tag was all the synergies related to the opportunity to push additional development for NVIDIA's market and potentially license quite a bit of NVIDIA IP through existing ARM channels. So if we cut off this opportunity to be acquired by NVIDIA, who is going to buy this company? Growth has been tepid even through COVID. Cash flow is not been good. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but SoftBank pumped a bunch of money into the company and it's been up. The last I saw this was around when the acquisition was announced and it had not been generating cash flow at all. So, so it, it really is not, it puts the company in a very precarious position. It also leaves the UK in a weird position where one of their leading tech companies has no home and nowhere to go. So it could list, it will probably be fairly disappointing from the perspective of SoftBank could list in the UK, although that's probably not likely. It'd be more likely to, to list in the US. Nonetheless, it's going to be not ideal because if they list and then they don't have capital to reinvest in their business, it's just going to dwindle, if you will. A better situation for the UK and SoftBank and for ARM is that whoever the buyer and new owner of this company is, is capable of continuing to grow the company. So that doesn't seem to be the direction this is going and how that plays out in the future, we don't know. But I, I kind of agree with NVIDIA. They were facing so many roadblocks. It seems like this thing probably will go away unless regulators beg them back to the, or unless there's a clear pathway that this thing could get approved. Yeah. The other one we want to talk about today, and we'll, it may take the rest of the 30 minutes, and we're not taking any position either way. Certainly Mike isn't, but the new CEO of Intel has a pretty distinctive life story. I'll fill in some of it, and Mike can do the rest. Apparently, he came to work at Intel. He's a math, very good math student. Came to work at Intel somehow as a high school student and managed to juggle a job at Intel and going through Stanford, probably with an EE degree, and then worked at Intel and was an important participant in the development of each of their processors. At one point, when Andy Grove was running the company, took on an approach to building their next processor where he decided that to do it in a timely way, he would have to automate the work that all these engineers did. And most of the people other than other than he thought that this was kind of a wild goose chase, but it worked and it was quite an achievement. At some point, I guess, later in his career, he became disappointed in how Intel was making decisions and left. I think he got kind of instant venture backing and formed a business and sold it for a lot of money. But as Intel you know, was falling behind Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung, because they just couldn't achieve the same capability in uh, very thin wafers, the board reached out to him and he is now 
been, I don't know, 12 months in office. And the question is, I mean, you had a similar situation at Microsoft where Bill Gates retired and his successor didn't do very well. And it wasn't until they got such a Nardella who really, really changed things around in terms of how Microsoft thought about their principal product, the Windows and Office. So the question that we'll spend some time on over the next few Wednesdays is, is that possible to do with Intel? And I've given you a very high level. I probably, I've certainly left out things. I hope I haven't misstated anything. But with that, we'll turn it back to Mike. Okay, so this this is actually a super fascinating story. I'll see if I can find a link to the article that Hunt's talking about because it does provide some really cool color on Gelsinger. He's probably without question the guy for the job. The question is, is the turnaround possible? How are they actually going to do it? So what they've done so far is to separate this fab business from the design business. And that's a logical, very smart decision, right? Partly because they have a lot of excess capacity on the fab side and partly because their fab isn't capable of producing the designs that they have. So with that, they have pre-purchased ASML's next generation machine. They're going to get the first ones and I think they'll take delivery in 2024. In between now and then, they need a bridge. So paid Taiwan Semiconductor a good chunk of money to be able to produce on the, I believe, the three nanometer node. So they'll even beat AMD to the three nanometer node, likely, which will likely mean that they're going to have far superior chips to AMD at that point. In between now and really like 20, the, the back half of this decade, a lot of the gains and improvements in processor design and production is, are going to come from a field called advanced packaging. Intel has actually invested quite a bit in advanced packaging, partly if not only because their capabilities in lithography were not in order to work around not using ASML's products. So long story short, they kind of, I shouldn't say accidentally, but in a way accidentally ended up with more expertise in this particular area. So between now and then, advanced packaging is going to be important to driving incremental gains and keeping up with Moore's Law. The trouble is, and for the whole industry in general, is that the whole industry is becoming very dependent on a company called ASML, which we've discussed in the past. They create lithography equipment. It's super complex. These machines, uh, the ones that Intel ordered, are $300 million a piece, which is just double the price of the current generation machine. So looking forward, it appears that there is a pathway for Intel to catch up. And they're going to bridge the gap with Taiwan Semiconductor, it's going to be expensive. They're going to have to invest very heavily in fabs going forward. And by separating the design house from the fab, there's an opportunity to take the x86 architecture and create more custom-tailored products for companies like Amazon, companies like Google that want to design their own custom chips. So we're sort of running out of time here, so I don't want to go too much farther in the weeds. But all that is to point out is that the case for Intel is looking better. The point that I really want to make, though, is this needs to play out over the course of the next three, four years 
this isn't a uh, tomorrow they're going to be you know, going gangbusters. The other thing, of course, there are more chips. And all we hear, I mean, the headline in the Times, the Wall Street Journal this morning was that the average chip inventory of people that use chips as of all types, uh, not just the cutting edge chips, is five days. So there's lots and lots of publicity about the lack of supply of chips and increasing demand. But it is the case that GM, Toyota, other car companies have curtailed production because they can't get their hands on chips. However, Mike and I were talking yesterday, as night follows day, in two years' time or three years' time, there'll be an oversupply of chips. I mean, that's just the way it works. It, the lead time to put these fabs in to get new designs that can be made by the fabs and whatnot is significant. And then everyone overbuilds and then chip prices go down and, and cash flow goes down. But it's hard to imagine as we, after the pandemic and looking forward, aren't going to need more server farms and more, more streaming, more everything. And uh, that's all going to require chips. So I think as the market values come more into a reasonable range, what we want to focus on is the very best software companies and then try to figure out by paying a lot of attention to Taiwan's semiconductor, which of course is a Taiwanese company. So, I mean, we, one of the expressions is don't stack in investing is don't stack risk. You know, better to have a U.S. But it's going to take us a while to try to figure out. It's going to take a while in time, but it's going to take Mike and myself, especially Mike will be doing most of it. What is the probability of, of being able to turn Intel around? And we'll have to pay some attention to advanced micro devices, AMD. And, and we obviously, Mike is a very good understanding, I think, of NVIDIA. And this is one of the things we'll work on over the next couple of Wednesdays. In the meantime, everyone stay well. We're probably just a few weeks from having uh, Omicron in the rearview mirror. So please, everyone, take care of yourselves. Uh, and we'll talk next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.